Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also make you feel totally in control? Enter Conair Girlbomb. They're like your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results, made just for us. From the ultimate girl bomb grip to the professional grade blades, say goodbye to settling for less. With Conair Girl Bomb, you get the precision and power that used to only be exclusive to men's tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girl Bomb, available at Walgreens. Hi, I'm Gabby Reese. Join me and my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, on our journey with Laird Superfood. From our kitchen to yours, we've crafted delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and so much more using high-quality functional ingredients. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 for 20% off your first order. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. The home stretch is here and it's landed the 76ers on... The cover of Sports Illustrated? Yes, a first for the franchise since way back when they signed a dude named Elton Brand to the roster. To help us look ahead at what the final weeks of the season might have in store, we check in with SI's Rob Mahoney. Part of it is just getting Tobias Harris. Part of it is kind of swapping out some of the peripheral pieces. But the combination of those two things, I think, really makes Philly altogether a more functionally deep team. When everyone's healthy, I think they stretch in the right kinds of ways to be able to make a meaningful playoff run. The impact of the Sixers' deadline moves and how things could change the playoffs are focus on this episode of The Broadcast. Hello to you out there in 76ers podcast land. Thank you, as always, for checking out the pod, giving it a listen, maybe even spreading the word. Hey, friend, have you heard of this 76ers podcast? Sign up. We'd love to have you, especially this time of year when the games take on that much more relevance and meeting the storylines get that much juicier and more significant it is just great to be in a post-All-Star break kind of world. And it's so amazing, especially when you think back, even this time two years ago, how the feel is that much different. As a team whose fortunes may not be that great, and you're well outside of the top eight, you're looking at the post-All-Star game break stretch like, all right, let's just kind of... And I'm not I'm certainly not inferring anything about players. I'm simply talking this from my own perspective as a uh, member of the media. Um, you're like, ah, you know, there's about 20-some games left. Let's keep moving, keep moving. You still say now, with the 76ers being one of the top teams in the NBA, keep moving, keep moving in respect to the games. But it's like you want that pace because you're so pumped and excited for the real time of year, the playoffs, to get here. So um, I'm really looking forward to bringing on Rob Mahoney to talk about the state of the 76ers, especially in light of the trade deadline moves. And we'll talk about something of great nostalgia, the prominence that comes with a team, 
players being featured on the cover of Sports Illustrated. We'll get to Rob Mahoney in just a second. Quickly reminding you that to become a subscriber to our feed, just go to any one of your favorite podcasting platforms, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, SoundCloud. Um, we are on uh, just about every major podcast hosting platform. Type in Sixers Podcast Network, and that will take you to our feed. I think in many ways it is refreshing, certainly nostalgic, and just all-around awesome that in this day and digital age, there can still be a lot of buzz generated by the cover photo on a print publication, and that's certainly what happened for the 76ers last week when on the cover of Sports Illustrated you could find the revamped starting lineup featuring J.J. Redick, Tobias Harris, Joel B., Jimmy Butler, and Ben Simmons. Process this. The Sixers are finally in, so why not dial up one of our guys from SI who's been so great over the past couple seasons to come on to talk about it and the state of the team, and that would be Rob Mahoney. Rob, how are you, man? I'm doing well, enjoying the season. Yeah, it's certainly been something that uh, there has been no shortage of storylines, particularly for the 76ers over the course of the last couple months. But, uh, yeah, I, I think it is nice that, in particular, the Sports Illustrated cover, it is still relevant. It means something. I mean, the content is always going to be good content, but now it's just a different medium of consumption. But I kind of like seeing a cover still having prominence. I don't know about you. No, for sure. And we appreciate that. I mean, I can just tell you from uh, from a team perspective and dealing with players and stuff, the cover still does matter to them. Certainly it matters. It registers in a different way than, oh, we just want to come to a story if we want to come to a cover story. Or in this case, we kind of did a, a re-preview of the entire Eastern Conference. And so the Sixers, I think, are the natural face of that as being the team that maybe changed most dramatically at the trade deadline. We're definitely going to get into that, but also you guys in re-previewing how things stood in the East. It really was a dive into some of the top teams, essentially the top five at the Eastern Conference. Why don't we begin there? Is the East back, or maybe a better word, revitalized? Is it now a true challenger to the Western Conference throne as you see it? Yeah, I mean, it just depends on how you want to classify it, because I think if you look if you're looking at, you know, where the, the, the playoff cutoff is, for example, when you're looking at the Charlottes and the Detroits and the Orlandos, that group relative to the West is just going to be weaker. There just isn't parity on quite that level yet. But if you're looking at, you know, who are the top five teams in the NBA, who are the top four teams in each conference, I think the East compares really favorably. And some of that is, you know, Milwaukee being as dominant as anyone. But also this glut of this of these four other teams, Toronto and Indiana and Philadelphia and Boston, who just played incredible basketball. And so there are some issues to account for in the bottom half of the standings. And certainly if you're looking at, you know, some of the the tank candidates for this year, a lot of them do come out of that that glut of the bottom of the East. But overall, I think the top of the conference is the strongest we've seen in a long time. Four zeroing on the seventy sixers, I'll take that one step further. What about from the divisional level and we look at the Atlantic? Because obviously you've got a couple teams, and I'm looking at this, obviously there's somewhat of a a biased perspective, but there's real good Atlantic division representation in that top five. And then in the sixth spot, Brooklyn, which i got to think is going to be one of the more compelling stories of the season. No, they've been they've done a really fabulous job, especially with the group that they have. And in terms of, you know, taking guys like D'Angelo Russell, giving them not only a platform to really show their game in a different way, but an opportunity to really develop. And the fact that they've done it with injuries to Karis Levert, to injuries to Spencer Dinwiddie, and yet they still play their style. They still play exactly the game that they want to play, I think pushes a lot of teams. 
it's a you know they're a group that have a really good sense of who they are and i think who they are in this case is a lot of guys who are making good on second chances and third chances or veterans who have come in guys like ed davis or damari carroll and know kind of exactly the job that they were hired to do and i think just having that can go a really long way for a team like the nets let's recap what happened about three weeks ago about Let's say 40 hours before the trade deadline, overnight rumblings starting to surface. The 76ers were going to be involved in a mega deal, really the first one leading up to the trade deadline. And then in the final hours, you have Milwaukee making waves and Toronto making a big splash as well. What was your reaction following everything unfolding in real time? I mean, I think, you know, for me, it was just a sense of all of these teams have a good sense of the fact that this is a wide open race that they're, you know, Milwaukee is really good, but maybe Milwaukee is catchable. Maybe we can, maybe our matchup, you know, if we just tweak one or two things, if we get a Marcus all, if we get a Tobias Harris, maybe we could really press them. And I think there's, there's really a feel within the East that this conference is more open than it's been a long time. And a lot of that has to do with LeBron being out of it, but also the fact that all these teams are kind of so close together. There's, a sort of rock, paper, scissors kind of balance between this top group where everyone matches up well against one team, but maybe not so well against another team. And so you really just want to make sure that your Ducks are in a row to whatever extent they can be come playoff time. Uh, so you can hopefully make it through the gauntlet where you're going to have to beat, you know, two or three of these teams to really go deep. And so, you know, when you see deadline action like that, obviously teams are responding to each other on some level, but these talks for these particular trades have been, you know, in the works for, for not just days, but weeks in a lot of cases and, you know, feelers and, and kind of exploratory discussions. And so these things don't just pop out of thin air. These are teams that have been thinking for quite a while on how to just get, you know, even if it's 5% better or 10% better and what that could mean in, in, you know, the landscape of the Eastern conference. I wanted to follow up on a couple of things you just said there. Was there one deal that surprised you the most? I think, I mean, the Tobias Harris one is pretty surprising in the sense of the free agent ramifications as much as anything. If you would have told me the Sixers would make a deal, you know, to try to get a little bit better for this year, obviously that makes sense. If you would have said, you know, maybe they make a deal for a fringe all-star type candidate. Okay. I could see them making a play for something like that with the pieces that they had. Uh, I would have thought maybe Markel Fultz is a part of that deal. And so, you know, the construction of the Sixers trades, I think was pretty interesting, but also the fact that, you know, as I mentioned, you're committing a lot right now to another guy who's going to be a big money free agent this summer. As people have projected already, this Sixers team, while, you know, has maybe the, you know, one of the top two or three lineups period in the NBA in terms of their starters is also going to be, you know, incredibly expensive moving forward. And so to see how the Sixers navigate that as much as anything this season, I think is something to watch for sure. One last thing to circle back on that. I, I promise for anyone listening out there, we will go heavy on 76 or stuff. Um, you mentioned the openness of how people perceive the Eastern Conference to be, and especially in that top five realm. Um, would you anticipate in the aftermath of any of these moves that that openness will shrink and close somewhat as we now look out and project over the final 20-plus games for these teams at the top uh, to wrap up the regular season? I think it depends largely on your confidence in Milwaukee because you know they added Nikola Mirotic without really giving up any meaningful pieces of the rotation, which is you know an, an enormous add under the circumstances for a team that's already that good. But there are certainly you know scouts and coaches and players within the league who see Milwaukee as a team that's going to be a little bit different in terms of the playoffs, a team that you know in close games, in half court offense situations, if you can really kind of scheme for them, could you know have their 
you know, they've been a dominant team so far. Maybe they're just a, another good team. Maybe they're, just, maybe they're even a great team, but maybe we can rise to their level. And so I think it, it, a lot of it falls back on that. And, you know, I'm probably more bullish on Milwaukee than most. I think they've, they've really separated themselves here. But if you just consider them to be a, a team that, you know, Toronto could catch on the right night or Philly or Boston or, you know, a plucky Indiana team could catch on the right night, uh, then maybe your perspective of these would be a little different than mine. 76ers time and looking at what the Sixers have done to try and improve their chances. What do we think the Sixers have right now? Of course, people will look at Tobias Harris and that acquisition first, but also how did you think they went about uh, reinforcing their rotation in terms of some of the reserves and veterans they picked up around the deadline as well? I mean, I think it helps a lot. And that's, you know, depth has been an issue for the Sixers all season in terms of, you know, not just what our starter is going to look like, but when we go into the kind of hybrid starter reserve lineups, what are we going to get out of those groups? And so I think that's one area where even just Tobias helps a lot, just getting another guy in the mix who's playing, you know, 35 to 40 minutes on, you know, in meaningful games, I think will help stretch this rotation even further. So then you have cases like players like Mike Scott, for example, who are situationally very valuable. And in other matchups, maybe not so much. So then you can kind of leverage him in just the right ways. You can leverage Boban Marjanovic in just the right ways. You can look at, you know, Jonathan Simmons or James Ennis, you know, matchup dependent kind of rotation players and plug them in the right places. And even, you know, TJ McConnell, I think, makes a lot more sense uh, as a player when you can get another shooter on the floor around him, another pick and roll guy to play off of. So I I think, you know, it's. Part of it is just getting Tobias Harris. Part of it is kind of swapping out some of some of the more perimeter or the more peripheral pieces. But the combination of those two things, I think, really makes Philly altogether a more functionally deep team. This isn't, you know, a traditionally deep team in the sense that, you know, as we've seen with Joel Embiid out of the lineup, they're still going to have their problems. You know, you take one piece out and, and they're still going to run into some issues. But when everyone's healthy, I think they stretch in the right kinds of ways to be able to make a meaningful playoff run. So we've had about nearly 300 minutes um, of the new starting group for the 76ers uh, since the trades were made, uh, outscoring their opponents by around 13 points per 100 possessions. And that's at least really right up there amongst some of the best in the league on the surface. Um, but where, how much more can chemistry, how important is that subplot, do you think? Um, what do you make of some of the initial stats? And then where are some of the areas that you feel this, this new group has to grow in particular? Oh, it's, I mean, it's very important. I mean, the Sixers are a team that kind of by design are, are pretty weird, you know, just by having Ben Simmons as a point guard, by the fact that they aren't a huge pick and roll team, by the fact that even just, they, you know, that they like to post up Joel as much as they do makes them different from a lot of other teams in the league. And so when you're adding, you know, not only Jimmy Butler in season, but then Tobias Harris in season on top of that, just as your you know chemistry with Jimmy was starting to coalesce, you're asking a lot of this group and the new players to kind of find their way within that. And so the chemistry piece of it, I think is, is really crucial, you know, in a different way than, you know, you may look at chemistry issues in Boston and kind of how volatile things there seem to be. This to me is just more of, of a, a thought experiment. It's a, you know, it's a science experiment in terms of matchups and manipulation and, you know, where can we get all of these players, you know, in the starting lineup who are all talented in very unique ways tapped into their own games and, you know, tapped in depending on what the defense is allowing us to do. Just because, you know, for most teams, you can go into a game kind of guessing at what the lineup coverage is going to look like, how, the you know, the opponent's going to match up with you. 
I think the Sixers, it's it's a little bit more random than that, just because there aren't a lot of places for guards to go. Someone has to guard Ben Simmons, and it's probably going to be you know a forward or a center. And so things are scrambled in a way that's very different, and in a way that I think demands a little bit more of a runway when you're looking at kind of how this group adapts and comes together and figures each other out from a chemistry standpoint. I want to amend that last stat note because I was looking at my my wrong notes. So Redick, Harris, Butler, Embiid, and Simmons, they've actually done a little bit better, obviously, in a shorter period of time. They played around 75 minutes together, and their net rating is just over 24.5. Did you view Tobias in particular as being a perfect, ideal-type fit for this unit? I think he's a really good one. And some of it's just the distinction between – you know, you could get a stretch forward, a guy who can shoot, or you can get, you know, who has been a guy who has been one of the best stretch forwards in the league this season and also has the ability to improvise and make plays for himself off the dribble to attack a closeout. I think, if anything, that's where Tobias has been, you know, maybe most successful in his career is in playing the sort of random basketball that playoff situations and high intensity situations create when teams take everything away from you. You not only want, you know, shooters and guys who can hit shots, but guys who can improvise and make plays. And I think that's where Harris falls into a, a really nice fit with the Sixers. You know, they have a, a very particular set of needs given, you know, their lineup situations that I discussed. But, you know, Harris, I think, fits a lot of them very, very well. Last time we talked, I think it was back in the preseason when you guys put out your top 100 going into the year. And uh, certainly Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons were topics of conversation at that point. And now that we're about two-thirds of the way through the year, I wanted to circle back and ask you about the two of those young and up-and-coming cornerstones for the 76ers. Where do you see them right now? I mean, Simmons is always very difficult to understand from a, you know, from a top 100 perspective. Obviously, incredibly skilled, incredibly talented. To have a playmaker like that running your offense, I think is beneficial no matter what, but especially when he's 6'10 and he's just, you know, warping things everywhere he goes on the floor by the, you know, the amount of help he demands. From a top 100 perspective, he's tricky because, you know, a guy like that you do have to plan around because of the fact that he's not a shooter, because of the fact that, you know, there are going to be games where he's not even really pressing to score uh, all that much. And so, you know, you want to value what he does as a playmaker. And, you know, he's maybe the most versatile point guard defender in the NBA in terms of just the range of players he can pick up. So obviously those two things are huge. Uh, but for the Sixers, I think the challenge is, and for any team that would be building around him from, you know, a generic top 100 type perspective, is how do you get, you know, the right personnel around him? And then I think the Sixers have done a, a fair job of that and certainly have a lot of talent around him. It's just going to be a matter of, you know, you can keep all of these guys happy when you're also kind of working around Ben's limitations in that way. And as far as Joel, I mean, this has been, you know, a largely dominant season for him. There's still some areas of growth that you would want to see in terms of, you know, his turnovers, in terms of the way he passes the ball, just giving thing, giving the ball up a little bit more willingly in some cases. But it, it's hard to ask a big who's that good and has that much of a size advantage where you want him to impose his will on a game, but you also want him to defer and uh, and pass to teammates when they're open and when he's doubled and things like that. It, there's a very fine balance that, he's still figuring out even while he's putting up incredible numbers and he's just bullying his way through, you know, most any matchup that opponents can put in front of him. And the other part of that is he really believes that he can take over and dominate too. So that seems like it figures into the balancing act as well. No, a hundred percent. I mean, it always is so tricky, especially at this level where, you know, to be successful in the NBA is one thing to reach like a star level caliber player in the NBA is, is an entirely different conversation. And so when you're looking at guys with that level of talent 
and know-how and savvy and, and confidence among all other things. It's hard to, you know, really stretch those guys to the limits of what they can do while also also asking them to play like really smart, restrained basketball on a play-by-play basis, because by nature, they want to press, they want to show, you know, how they can dominate a particular matchup, how they can work over this guy in the post and in Bede's case. And maybe that's not always the best play, but there is some value to just, you know, funneling an offense through that for, for the sake of the volume of it. The most amazing thing to me about those of you guys who cover the league on a national level is how detailed your coverage can be while having to account for and keep track of so much stuff. So I don't want to put you totally on the spot, but did you happen to see the first, let's say, minute 10 seconds of the Sixers game against the New Orleans Pelicans and what Ben Simmons did to start that game off the other night? Admittedly, I did not. So he chucked up a three-pointer, which by my count is the second true three-point attempt, standing three-point attempt he's taken over the last season plus. You know, there have been a couple desperation heaves at the end of quarters or halves, things like that. But um, over the last couple weeks, it seems like Ben has been a more willing and proactive jump shot taker, mostly inside the arc, but he's sprinkling a couple threes. Do you think that could make that much of a difference in terms of keeping the opposition honest once the playoffs roll around, if he gets started on that right now, working on that over the final month and a half? I think it absolutely can. I mean, if you if you go, you know, follow any team through a deep playoff run and ask their coaches and players about, you know, certain games during, you know, the conference finals or the conference semifinals, a lot of them will call up that time that a guy off the bench, for example, came in and hit like two jump shots and the way that that turned the momentum of a game. And so the idea that a guy like Simmons, who's going to be on the floor a ton, who's going to be involved in so many plays, and yet who defenses you know, give a lot of space to, if he knocks down two or three jumpers in even one, in like one meaningful playoff game, and by the looks of the East, there are going to be a lot of meaningful playoff games, that could be an enormous thing for the Sixers. And so the idea of him as a confident and willing jump shooter you know, is kicked around the league all the time because you know, people are enormously curious about Simmons and kind of what his developmental track is going to be. But, you know, if, if he adds any element of that to his game, and again, you know, as you mentioned, it doesn't have to be three-point shooting. It's even, you know, pulling up from the elbow, pulling up one step in off a screen. You know, that kind of shot alone really changes how you have to guard the Sixers. And with all the considerations that they put before you already between, you know, you have to have someone to chase around J.J. Redick. You have to have people who are big and strong enough to deal with both Butler and now Harris. You also have to keep, you know, basically a traditional center on the floor to deal with and beat at all times. If you also have to hug up even even one step closer to Ben Simmons in order to account for the fact that he might shoot, I think that changes the entire dynamic of how you guard the Sixers. Jimmy is certainly an interesting wrinkle to add into this equation. He was the first big trade acquisition for the Sixers, obviously, earlier this season. And at least I think fans here had this certain perception of the style of play that he was going to bring pick-and-roll, ISO killer. Early on, we saw the game winners against the Charlotte Hornets and the Brooklyn Nets. But as the season has gone along, we've seen someone who in Jimmy has consistently, at least to me, looks like he's been trying to fit in and blend and respect the territories that someone like a Simmons or a Joel or a J.J. have already carved out for themselves. Uh, what have you? Uh, what have been your impressions of how Jimmy has handled integrating himself and also trying to also affect things at the same time with the Sixers? Yeah, I mean, he was great to watch last year with the Wolves, where you know, injury aside, he really had kind of a fringe MVP type season for them in a very different kind of role. But it's been great seeing him kind of fall back into this set where. 
yes, he can be a spot scorer and ball handler when you need to, but also, I mean, that dude's just one of the most aggressive cutters in the league. A guy who off ball, like, is just bumping through people. He's so hard to keep in front of you to really account for. And so to have a player like that on a team like this that really encourages that kind of ball movement and has the, you know, the playmaking and the structure in place to accommodate it, I think has been really fun. And it makes it so much more difficult where, you know, Jimmy, a lot of his value comes in the fact that he is so strong and that he's able to, you know, if you put even a slightly smaller wing in front of him, he's able to get to the rim or even just get his position to get off a shot, whatever he needs to do. And so if you have that kind of player, but also a guy who's moving without the ball, and thus is able to get even a step on his defender before the play starts, where he's not working out of isolation, but off the catch with a step advantage. It just makes him that much more difficult to combat. And I think he's been very game, at least in, in my viewing experience, in terms of just what you described, really kind of falling into a certain pecking order here. His usage has probably taken the biggest hit of all these guys in terms of you know what he's given up to make this group work. And I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. But it's always going to be a little bit of a give and take with him. And I think in a good way where, you know, in in a playoff series where you need him to do a little more, where the matchup leans his way, then he can certainly do that. He can attack guys in ISO if you need him to. He can do the dribble handoff game or the pick and roll game if that's what you want to do. And, you know, that's what makes the Sixers so dangerous is that guys like him and Tobias, who, you know, nominally speaking, are not necessarily your first option on offense, could become your first option for a quarter or a game at a time. And that was going to be one of my follow-ups. Do you feel like the playoffs would invite more of the traditional type of style of play we've seen Butler assume on an individual basis? And is it easy to flick that switch um, once that type of setting and environment comes around in the postseason? I mean, I think it will certainly invite it. It'll be interesting to see how much the Sixers kind of take them up on that invitation because this is a team that, you know, under, under Brett Brown really wants to run its stuff. They really want to run, you know, the handoffs for Embiid to Redick. They really want to kind of get into their usual offense. And so how much they're willing to break for that based on a matchup or based on a game or, you know, a quarter where things just aren't going according to plan, I think will be really interesting to see. But when you look across the East and especially the teams that they're going to have to encounter to really get, you know, through the Eastern Conference, these are some of the best defensive teams in the league. Even the Pacers, for that matter, who, you know, could be the Sixers' first-round opponent if those teams fall into the four or five spots you know so you're going to have to go through you know your your third and fourth options on offense on a lot of these cases shots that you maybe don't want to be taking mechanisms of offense that you don't want to be relying on and maybe jimmy's isolation stuff falls into that where it's not that it's a bad option you just want to run things towards you know higher ends in mind and so if you ultimately have to fall back to a jimmy butler post up or isolation i think that speaks to being in a really good place as an organization one thing we've seen Brett Brown do a little bit more of in the aftermath of the trades is using Butler in some lineups with someone like a Boban Marjanovic to maybe get him going more in pick-and-roll situations. We're standing by to find out more about the health of Bobby after the game against the New Orleans Pelicans. And I'm not sure why, Rob. I don't know if you feel this way. Um, but to me, it seemed like, you know, whenever the 76ers played a team that Marjanovic was on, there was just like this attitude of, Boban being a novelty um, gimmick is probably too harsh, but even in seeing him in the three weeks that he's been with the 76ers and, and watching him when he actually got into games against the team in the past, he, like to me, is so much more than that. There is a, a real skill, obviously, to to his game. Oh, very much so. I mean, he's not the first giant man who's been in the NBA. I mean, the NBA has cycled through seven-footer after seven-footer in the hopes of finding someone 
even like Boban, a guy who can really use his size in an effective way, who, you know, is going to just gobble up every rebound in his vicinity, who has great touch on his hook shot like that. I mean, the issues that make Boban, you know, more of a novelty or more of a situational player are mostly just mobility related in terms of, you know, the modern NBA asks a lot of its centers in terms of, you know, covering a lot of ground on the floor, covering a lot of different kinds of players. Even Embiid is stretched to his limits in some matchups. And that's, you know, we're talking about one of the best defensive players in the league. And so to ask a guy like Marjanovic, who, you know, is giant and imposing and, you know, almost almost comically oversized, even relative to a lot of, you know, other centers, to ask him to chase guys around the floor or even just make kind of standard closeouts just puts a different dynamic in play. And so there's no question that his skill level is really high. There's no question he works a lot on his game. There's just a physical reality of moving that much mass from one place to another uh, that kind of makes him more of a contextual matchup. Before we wrap this up, a couple global-related questions to the NBA as we step back out looking at the rest of the league. Your impressions of Toronto and the trade they had with Gasol, and maybe it was just that in two matchups against the Raptors this year when Joel and Jonas Valanciunas were both out there that I felt like Jonas really gave the 76ers and the second unit, and even Joel at times, some fits. Um, but what was uh, what did you think when that trade came across? Did you feel like it was uh, appreciably a bettering of Toronto's roster, uh, acquiring Gasol and parting ways with Valanciunas? I do, and, you know, Valanciunas is can be a really helpful player in the right matchup. You know, can be very physical inside, can be very effective. But I think what Toronto really needed as much as anything was just another playmaker on the floor, especially for their second unit groups. And so, if, you know, when you're starting to, whether you're going to ultimately bring us off the bench or maybe you start him in certain matchups, whatever you want to do, just the ability to stagger a little bit to get another guy who isn't, a, you know, maybe not a ball handler in a traditional sense, but you can run your entire offense through Marcus all at the elbow and do very well for yourself. And I think that the Raptors are already seeing some of the payoffs of that in terms of just his ability to make plays to guys who are, who are cutting back door, who are springing open on curls for threes. I think that's where you see the real benefit there where, you know, a, Gasol not only has the defensive savvy of being, you know, a former defensive player of the year, a guy who knows how to be in the right places at the right time, and a traditional center in an Eastern Conference that looks like it's going to demand that, whether you're talking about Embiid or even some of these other matchups, you just need a little bit of a little bit of burl to get through that group. And I think Gasol helps them there. But it, it's really his playmaking as much as anything that I think it's going to stand out for them. All right. And looking at a couple teams out west, Denver, Portland, OKC, three teams that have given the 76 or some issues, and I guess not viewed as the perennial year-in, year-out powers um, as, you know, maybe in terms of the likes of a, a Golden State or Houston or even like a San Antonio um, in past seasons. Out of, out of those three, Denver, Portland, OKC, which do you feel perhaps has the, at this point, uh, deepest potential as far as playoff runs go? I'm I'm really tempted to pick Denver. I think there's some trepidation there just in terms of we haven't seen this group of players kind of tested in a postseason setting before. And especially with Nikola Jokic and, and just kind of, you know, the weird inversion of their offense that's so effective, but also you just kind of want to see it put in, you know, put under fire in that way that so many of these other teams have been. Um, so, I, I you know, I don't mean to disparage Denver's season to say that of those three, I think Oklahoma City is the most interesting to me. I just see them as being a little more battle-tested in a lot of ways. I I really trust what they're able to do defensively and, you know, the replicability of that on a night-to-night basis, you know, even in a playoff setting. They seem very adaptable to me in that way in terms of the matchups that they're going to have to deal with. And when you're looking at, you know, what teams could potentially give the Warriors the most trouble – 
I don't know that the Thunder's offense is quite there enough, but if the defense is, and if Paul George is operating at this level, then you have to think they can at least get close enough to make things interesting in a type of series like that. And so, you know, the Western Conference field really does come down to, you know, who can make things most uncomfortable for teams like the Warriors. And I think the Thunder are right there at the top of the group just by nature of, you know, having, you know, even just a, a really high level wing defender or a really high level center defender, a guy who, you know, that balance of those two things. Um, and then also, you know, Paul George is being really an MVP candidate in his own right offensively and turning into, you know, kind of a, a Kevin Durant light or maybe just a Kevin Durant clone. Always good stuff from Rob Mahoney from Sports Illustrated and the crossover. Rob, appreciate the time. Thanks, man. Thanks so much. Always great to hear Rob Mahoney drop some hoops knowledge any time of year. Follow him on Twitter, at Rob Mahoney. We appreciate him taking the time. We appreciate you listening. The stretch of really important games continues for the 76ers. Golden State coming up on Saturday. After that, a trip to Houston next week. Be sure to keep checking back in with the broadcast as we get you set and covered as the season winds down. See Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hi, I'm Gabby Reese. Join me and my husband, big wave surfer, Laird Hamilton, on our journey with Laird Superfood. From our kitchen to yours, we've crafted delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and so much more using high-quality functional ingredients. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 for 20% off your first order. Introducing the Lisa Chill Collection, your answer to hot nights. These mattresses beat the heat with ultra-cool covers, whisking away heat for the perfect sleep temperature. Save up to $460 on chill mattresses and get two free pillows when you shop now. iHeart listeners can save an extra $50 off by visiting lisa.com forward slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details.